This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the website and sign up for the Hui Deal Pipeline Club. Uh, we're currently up to about 400 to 500 members. Uh, pretty slow at getting these podcasts out. So hopefully by the time this release, it'll be a lot more than that. And remember that if you guys refer someone to the club and they invest or you invest at least $50,000 with one of my future deals, you'll be invited into the exclusive Alihi Mastermind Club with 12 to 20 other serious investors actually putting deals, uh, money where their mouth is and, and actively investing. And we can have great discussion over what's coming through the pipeline or what other deals you guys are finding out there. And if you guys don't know what this, the Hui Deal Pipeline Club is, it's a club that I've created for you guys to join in on deals. I underwrite the deals. I underwrite the people that I work with. And I always urge you guys to don't work with anybody you guys don't know, like, or trust. And today I have Aaron Lowey on the line. How are you doing, Aaron? Hi, thanks for having me. Aaron wrote this book called Broke Millennial. And it's a pretty cool book about stop scraping by and, and living your financial life for the younger guys out there. I know a lot of the listeners are younger adults and it's kind of good to kind of get in that mindset of what kind of lessons you're teaching your kids. And a lot of people that come to me, I tell you guys, you don't have an investing problem because you need money to invest. You've got to be able to create wealth first and, and save it before you really start to exponentially grow it. So Aaron, you're sort of my subject matter expert on this. I kind of fumbled along through my wealth building. I'm not that old, but I just kind of got here just by being cheap and then investing in real estate. Maybe tell us a little bit about your backstory and on uh, how you got to where you are today. Sure. It's not as broke as you would think in a lot of ways. I actually have been debt-free my entire life, and that's a big part of my origin story. And I apologize to anyone who hears the word gasping in the background. That's my dog. His name is Mosby for any How I Met Your Mother fans out there. But to get back to it, I actually, my first real experience that I can remember having to deal with money was when I was a really little kid. I was seven years old and my parents were not big on handing us money. And when I say us, I'm referring to my little sister. And if we wanted to buy something, even at a young age, we had to pay at least 50% of that. So if I was at a store and I saw a toy that I wanted and I pointed it out, my dad said, sure, if you can pay 50%. So as a seven-year-old, I didn't have a whole lot of earning potential. So one of the things that I figured out I could do was sell Krispy Kreme donuts when my mom was having a yard sale. And I asked my dad if he would stake my business because I didn't have the upfront capital, obviously not terms I'm using when I'm seven years old, but I didn't have the capital to go out and buy the Krispy Kreme donuts. So my dad acquiesced and he went and bought several dozen boxes of donuts. And my sister and I proceeded to sell out rather quickly to all these people coming to the yard sale. So afterwards, I'm looking at this mound of quarters and just thinking like, oof, I'm going to go to Toys R Us. I am going to tear it up, buy two super soakers. It's going to be a great summer. And then my dad walks over and says, well, your little sister worked for you for a little bit. So let's give her $2. And I bought the donut. So you owe me back $8. So out of the $20 that you have here, your net profit is 10. And he didn't just explain that. He actually took the money. And I felt very jilted and cheated in the moment. But it was my first encounter with understanding that maybe money didn't exactly work in this black and white way that I originally thought where somebody just hands you money and you have it, yay. 
And throughout my childhood, my parents kind of continued to lay out these school of hard knock lessons when it came to understanding finance. So that when I was 18 and I was deciding where to go to college, I had been trained how to make a very rational choice based on my future earning potential with the majors I was interested in, based on what I wanted to do in the future. And what I often say is that I gave up going to my dream school so that I could live my dream life because I went to a school that gave me scholarship money. And my parents had already told us from a very early age that we were going to be responsible for 50% of our college education, just like buying those toys growing up. When it came to college, my sister and I also had to be responsible for 50%. So I picked the college that gave me a scholarship that covered my portion of the tab. And all throughout college, I worked and during the summers, I worked so that I could save up money. And after I graduated, I moved to New York City, which is where I live now. And I've been here for about six years at this point. And I, I, my whole real money journey, I mean, when I moved to New York, I was in a ward broke. I was earning $23,000 a year the first year. And for anyone who's ever even visited New York, you know, that is not a lot of money to make. And I had savings to fall back on, but I didn't want to touch it. Because once you start to amass a good nest egg, you really don't want to see it drain down. And so I focused, I worked three jobs to make ends meet so that I could just hustle through. And I still was trying to save because all the lessons that my parents had taught me had put me in a position to, even when I didn't have a lot of money, I could be in control of it. And that whole experience right there, my first year to two years living in New York is really what inspired me to start Broke Millennial. Yeah, going back to that, that Krispy Kreme story, I think if people would have learned that lesson kind of when you did, I mean, a lot of people, they say, you know, they don't like to take on debt. And I'm like, well, just think about it in simple terms of like, you know, you're running a Krispy Kreme store or a lemonade store, you know, where the lemons cost $2 and the lemonade, you sell it for five. Like who cares how much you're paying for the debt on your mortgage? Worry about what's the delta between how much you're paying for the lemons. And, and I think that would have been a good lesson for people to learn when they're, they're younger. Because, I mean, you have to effectively use debt. I mean, that's how businesses do it. It's true. It's funny though. I have a major debt aversion. You know, I, I have no interest in dabbling in real estate right now. Part of the reason is because the idea of, well, one, I live in New York City, which is incredibly expensive to deal in real estate here. But two, it is honestly the idea of debt has always been, I wouldn't even say intimidating. It's just something that I viscerally react to. And so I focus on building wealth through the market as opposed to through real estate. And I have friends within the personal finance community that kind of fall into either one camp staunchly, the other camp, or some hybrid of the two. But I, for right now, just have very little interest in dabbling in real estate because the idea, I'm also very type A control oriented. So the idea of trying to build a team of people to whether it's a property manager or whatnot in a state that I don't live in to try to handle something if a tenant needs it just sounds like more stress than I'm willing to deal with at the moment. Right. So I just dump my money in the market <laughs> and I reinvest in my business, which I've managed to cash flow. I haven't had to go into debt yet, but at some point you're right. When I'll want to level up, I will probably have to take out a loan. Yeah. I think it's a, a two stage approach and you know, Guys like Grant Cardone say, like, first, dude, you got to save some money. You can't be uh, losing money in your pocket. There can't be any yeah. holes there. Then once you get $50,000, now you can kind of learn how to properly invest it. And then once you get to that $100,000 level, that's when you learn how to multiply it. So I, I think we can all agree that it's that save, being able to save money is the first step to this. And if you can't do that, don't even start investing. 
It's true. You do have to be, that is something I also recommend to people is that you have to be focused on how to save. You have to have the other areas of your financial life under control before you start to dabble in investing. Because I do get a lot of people that ask, you know, how can I start investing? And so, well, first you have to look at your total financial picture. What's the situation right now? You know, if you're $200,000 in student loan debt and it's feeling difficult to pay that every single month. You don't have spare change to be investing. And there's a lot of the gamification of investing has, I think, made it so a lot of people think that they can start dabbling sooner than maybe they should. And I I like the the catchy lines like invest your spare change. But the thing is, you really can't invest your spare change to wealth. It has to be more than the spare change. Right, right. And and that's inherently why I like real estate because there is that barrier to entry. You need like 20, 30 grand to get going. And that's kind of why I, I'm not a fan of the Bitcoin stuff at all, because that's what a lot of these guys who only have a 500 bucks to their name gravitate towards. And I never go to where the competition is. It just seems like it's just too much noise in that area. But Aaron, I kind of want to get to, you know, you you talk to a lot of, uh, you do coaching too, and you're kind of working with that broke millennial Obviously, you kind of had a leg up not having a huge student loan debt, but how do you work with people today? And what are a couple of the biggest mistakes that people come out thinking? Sure. And you're right. I didn't have to deal with student loan debt myself, but I am engaged to somebody who has it. And I knew very early on that odds were statistically high that I would probably marry into debt just by the sheer number of the millennial generation that has the debt. And if I were to only date people who didn't have student loan debt, it was going to drastically narrow my pool of choices. I actually had a phone call with a woman just the other night who, like myself, has managed to bash flow her life up until this point. She's around 27 years old. She's never been in debt. She also lives in New York City. And she is dating a man who has very significant student loan debt from his degrees. And unfortunately, it's not med school debt. It's that kind of number without that sort of guaranteed return because he ended up going to film school for his master's at a very expensive Ivy League school. Not, and- not as bad as international studies or, or pottery. It's true, but my sister actually works in film and it's a very boomer bust type market. You know, some people can do great and some people, depending on what you're willing to do, don't turn out so well. But one of the things that I pointed out to her is that her natural, in in his defense, when she was just outlining all of the, the whole scenario for me to understand, she kept coming back to this point, and I believe unbeknownst to her in the way she was talking, she kept coming back to the point of his work ethic and that He does jobs that other people might think are below them. He doesn't let anything stand in his way. And that to me is one of the really big takeaways when you start thinking about how to handle your money when you're in a feeling broke situation. You are above nothing. Just because you have a college education doesn't mean that that's an automatic out. You can only go into a professional job. When I moved to New York, my day job was working as a page for The Late Show with David Letterman, but I was also babysitting. I was working as a barista at Starbucks. And I knew a lot of people who worked the same day job I did and felt very penny pinched, but were refusing to get other jobs because they felt, oh, I have a college degree. That's not where I should be working. So not only should you consider that in a potential partner, that your partner has a really strong work ethic, but that's something you need to know about yourself. Like, did I want to be working at Starbucks and babysitting these Upper East Side brats? No, but I needed to pay my bills. And that those were flexible jobs I could get that complemented my day job. I do feel very strongly about that. But it's also about recognizing that 
the traditional path that we are all, I would even say force fed from the time that we're a very young age is not what's going to be best for everybody. Four-year college is not the right fit for absolutely everyone. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably past that stage. But if there's anyone in your life or even thinking about perhaps children in the future, there are so many great options like trade school and craftsman skills and things that are needed. You know, being an electrician or a plumber is pretty much recession proof, fixing HVACs. These are all jobs that can go up into the six figures. You ultimately could probably own your own business. So that gives you a sense of being an entrepreneur. You can set your own schedule. The upfront capital to get trained is much lower than going to a four-year school. You're less likely to be in horrible amounts of debt. So I, I just wish we could kind of pivot our thought process about what it means to be successful into this kind of, you have to go to a four-year school, you have to have this traditional, you know, what we would call a white collar career. And those are really the two big metrics of success to a lot of people. And I, I do believe we're starting to pivot away from that a little bit as we see a big focus get put on entrepreneurs, but I would like to see more of an openness around different ways to pursue a career. Yes. And I do a lot of calls with my investors and just taken from the 40-year-olds to the 60-year-olds, a few takeaways I'm, I'm kind of hearing is, first, a lot of these guys, they, they went to, you know, had an undergrad, master's, and even a doctorate, and they're very highly educated. And yeah, they're already investing in real estate, so they're already a alternative thinkers. So they see the value of the college, but they also see how exactly how you're saying that it's, it's maybe not the best thing, and maybe a junior college is probably the better way to go. Just especially if you, if you have a screw off type of child. But then they also realize the college was some of the best years of their life. Some great parties, great times, great friends. <laughs> but I I will also say that I talk to a lot of these doctors, lawyers, engineers, and a lot of them are very unhappy. They got kind of put into this linear path and they don't like what they do and it's very very uh, rare that somebody actually likes what they do and by sending your kid up to a a college that they don't really want to go to I mean you're kind of setting them up to fail that's what I also find very interesting about the conversations that I have with people and a lot of the flack I would say that the millennial generation gets is we really are the first generation who thanks to I would say the internet does have the option to lifestyle design at a very young age. We don't necessarily have to take that traditional path of working until we're 65, retiring from one company, and then living it up in our final days. We really can be digital nomads or freelancers or contractors and make a completely acceptable living off of that. Now, it it presents its own types of challenges, but it's interesting to me how many baby boomers to older Gen Xers I know that have a little resentment towards millennials for the ability to do this. And I think it's so funny how many people just don't understand why something like the FIRE movement, that financial independence retire early movement is really taking off. And it's because if our model has been watching our parents struggle and working long, long weeks and having to work until they're 65 or 70, some people lost a lot of money in the recession and had to stay in the workforce a lot longer. Why wouldn't you want to figure out how to hack the system to be more palatable to your life now? And I have friends who, like you mentioned, went to, did what they were supposed to do in the sense of went to undergrad, got their degree, went on to med school, and they're now in $200,000, $300,000 of debt, which means they can't really have any option to quit their jobs anytime soon. And they make good money, but so much of that is eaten up by their student loan debt. And one of them says to me, he goes, I'm jealous of you all the time that you've just figured out this way that you can be doing what you want and being your own boss and setting your own schedule before we're even 30. 
And somebody asked me recently, do you think you'll ever go back to the traditional workforce? And I said, I don't know that I could at this point because I've loved having so much autonomy and I don't ever think I could go back now. All the kids these days are investing in the latest fad like tech or cryptocurrency. If I had learned anything these past few years watching the wealthy is that they invest in the most boring stuff and the basic commodities. What is more of a necessity than coffee? To learn more about this boring investment, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash coffee. And to take your business, I mean, like, like you said, you don't invest in real estate quite yet. But what I do want to point out, and this is going to the millennial out there, is that you're figuring out what your highest and best use is and you're doubling down on what that is, your business. It's one thing for a millennial to be like, you know, I don't got enough money to invest, but I'm just not going to do anything, right? Like that's the unacceptable path. Like you've chosen your path to put your time and resources into your, your publishing, and that's your business. And a lot of guys I talk to, they're high paid tech guys, you know, 150 grand a year. Mm-hmm. And we get to talking and I'm like, you know, you should, maybe you shouldn't start investing as heavily now, like how you first thought when you called me, maybe you should just focus on your tech startup. That's where you should be pouring all the marketing money. I mean, that's, that's dollars where you should be using there. And I would say too, I took a very, I, I worked you know, traditional jobs for the first about five years of my career, which for anybody who's been in the workforce a long time, sounds like nothing and a joke, but I saved so much of my money at that point in my life. And I side hustled in addition and I saved everything that I earned side hustling, which put me in a spot that combined with the fact I didn't have debt meant that I could easily walk away from a desk job and take the risk on starting a business, knowing full well that if, you know, I went belly up in the first year or two years, I could re-enter the traditional workforce if I needed that. But my goal, this, I actually just hit my first full year of working by myself and for myself. And my goal was to earn the same and base salary as I did from my old job. That to me is what would indicate that I was being successful because at least I wasn't losing a whole lot of money. And I have hit that metric. So it's been nice that now moving forward, I can just continue to grow. And my thought was, I think that my brand and my business has more potential than staying in a traditional job. And if I didn't give it my full attention, it was never going to grow that way. So I just took a gamble. And so far it's paying off. But I think that you, if you're going to take a risk like that, it needs to be a calculated risk. You have to consider all the other factors as well. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I know, you know, talking to a lot of the, from the 30 to 40 year old crowd, you know, the young families out there, I mean, they just don't have the time to kind of, build a business or even invest passively in like a turnkey rental, something as simple as that. And, you know, they, they just don't have that risk appetite to just quote unquote, like find yourself in your twenties. I think that's a big, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, you're really wasting time when that's the time where you should be kind of doing what you did and experimenting and screwing up while you do have the risk tolerance at that time. And I think risk tolerance is a great point. Not everyone is built to be an entrepreneur, to be self-employed. A lot of people like the comfort of having the benefits and having the steady paycheck and seeing that money hit your bank account every two weeks. And I get that. And I think you have to know that about yourself too. You might have dreams of being your own boss, but I would at least start a side hustle and kind of test drive it in the comfort of still working full time before ever taking a leap because... Yes, it does involve a certain level of risk and having a certain level of risk tolerance. And if you don't have that, just like investing in the market, if, if you know that you will panic if you see a dip, then it's not wise for you to be running 
and checking your portfolio every month, every couple of days. You know, I had a friend of mine who her checking account, it was all with Chase. So anytime she would log in, she would see her JP Morgan investments whenever she logged into her bank account and she had a very low risk tolerance. I said, you have got, you either have to switch banks or you have to do something because it's not healthy for you to be seeing a dip every time you log in and then you start to panic. And as soon as she put it out of sight, out of mind, everything just started to calm down. She didn't feel the need to like knee jerk react to any sort of little blip in the market and make her want to sell when it went down and, and all the things that you're not supposed to do. So you have to, you have to really be brutally honest with yourself about who you are before making any of these kind of decisions, whether it's investing or buying real estate or starting your own business, whatever it is. Yeah. So, so say some, um, one of the progressive parents in here are in their fifties and they've got a, a kid graduating college and they're, they're saying, Hey Aaron, my kids don't listen to me. Can you just talk to them for a few hours? <laughs> take them out to lunch. You can take them to wherever. Here's 200 bucks. Go and take them to the zoo or whatever. Well, you know, what would be your first set, your steps to kind of dissect the situation? What are you usually uh, telling people in like, you know, in a short period of time that you have with them? Well, first, those are typically the folks that I speak with. I usually talk to millennials who have been in the workforce a little bit longer, are finally starting to try to get it together. Because when you're in your very early 20s, a lot of times people don't want to listen at that point, and they haven't had enough time to fail or to get hit in the mouth by the world. And it usually takes some sort of catalyst for people to wake up and realize, oof, I got to get my financial life together. And that's usually when I step in. Um, because if they don't want to hear it, it doesn't really matter how great I am at relating to them. It's not going to go anywhere. They have to want it for themselves. And I think that's one of the big issues with parents is that you want to force your kid to do what is right early on. But if your kid doesn't want it, man, it's not going to work. Just like if somebody's overweight and they don't want to lose weight and they keep eating the food that they're not supposed to eat, doesn't matter how many times you tell them they shouldn't do that, they're still going to do it. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's kind of funny that like a lot of parents, they have real estate and they think they get in their head that, well, I need to take my kid out and fix the house up, you know, when they're kids, so they learn how to do this. And from what I'm seeing, that's the absolute wrong thing to do because the kid's just going to revolt and they're like, screw this real estate stuff. But you know what happens in a few cases have come forward and said, you know, my parents did exactly this. I revolted, but damn it, they were right. But <laughs> it was a lot later. They're in their 40s already. Right. You usually do realize the intelligence of the people who are trying to help you when it might be a little too late. But I would always encourage that the first step is to never come to a conversation like this with any sort of attack mode or condescension. Just try to hear what the other person is saying. Try to hear if it's a parent talking to a child, what does your child want to do? What are your child's goals? And then after you start to suss out that information, say, okay, I hear that you want to be running your own business by the time you're 30 and you're 22 now. So what can we do in the next, let's say, two years to get you on track towards that goal? What are the short-term things that you can be doing? And start to reposition these long, long-term, very high-level goals into more practical, tangible, short-term goals. And maybe that's going to a local community college and taking a course that you didn't take in college that you need in order to be better in your business. Or maybe that's getting an internship or an entry-level job within the type of business that you want to work in. Or maybe that's just starting to aggressively save so that you ultimately have the capital. Whatever it is, you have to help them figure out 
how to take this high level idea and break it down into smaller parts, just with any other financial goal. I mean, you could just be talking to your spouse about what your long-term goals are, and then you work backwards to break it down into something that's actually more achievable. But a lot of times you see people in their early 20s just have this really beautiful, lofty dream, but no tangible steps of how to get themselves there. And don't shoot down somebody's dream. That would also be my other tip is, you know, I just, my, I think about my poor parents. If they, if they had ever, my sister works in film, I'm self-employed. And if they hadn't been supportive, I can't imagine how damaging that probably could have been to our relationship. And, you know, my sister has had a short go to Tribeca and then had a, a script bought by a major network. So, and she's 25 years old. So it just makes me giggle sometimes when people say, oh, well, it's so hard to achieve anything in that business. And yeah, sure it can be, but it also can be done. So give them a chance. All right. Have you ever ran across, um, you know, those, I don't know if apathetic is the word. I'm not quite the wordsmith, but like a person maybe in their teens that didn't care about anything, just wore black all the time. And, and <laughs> they, they grew up to be in their early 20s. They just don't care. They, they don't want, they, they're not materialistic. They're a whole on the, you know, the, what do they call it? Vanning or something or, or RVing around the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then you're trying to you're trying to get them on set, and they just are not materialistic, and like the normal means of motivation just aren't there. And I think that's okay too. You just everybody's going to have their own path and have their own metrics for what's comfortable. And if people are comfortable living off of very little amounts of money, and they're self sustainable, and it's fine, you know, they're not incurring debt, they're not putting their parents in debt, they're not asking for money it's okay if that's their path that they want to go down. And you honestly, again, to the point earlier, you're not going to change someone's mind just because you don't think it's the right way to do it. That's just not how it's going to happen. So I would say as long as they're not imposing some sort of financial drain on the parents and they are not going into debt themselves, let them do it. I, you know, it's funny too. You never, you never totally know what somebody's situation is. I actually have a friend of mine who works in personal finance and she and her husband RV around the country and they also bring in about $130,000 a month. But you would never know it from how they dress and the fact that they live in an RV and travel around the country. So you just never know from what's kind of being presented to you as well. Yeah, you know, when I have these interviews with these success stories and kind of when I dissect, dissect my past, like it's always like having a mentor is always like one of the biggest pieces to the success, right? Because you kind of break down. There's all these components of having grit or being actually good at what you're doing and having a good mindset. But I always think it's the, the mentorship. And when I was a broke college student, I was reading all these personal finance blogs and that was kind of how I did it. I mean, it's, I guess it's like, maybe just just have them start reading and you know maybe not not pay for a mentor but those informal mentors like what are you reading to I agree there's a lot out there that whether it's a book or TV show a podcast there are so many forms of media i mean even just going on reddit it's unbelievable how much access to information we now have and you can find something that fits your interest in learning. So whether you're somebody who's very auditory and you want to just be hearing stories and you like those narrative 
then podcasting is great. There's a podcast out there for you on whatever topic, I promise. That just seems to be how it works. There are great books and written in all sorts of different ways. So if if you pick up one and it's just not something that speaks to you, try another. Crowdsource for recommendations. And I totally agree with you on the mentorship part. And I, I do think that we often have this misconception that a mentor has to be somebody who's much older, much further along, very well established in a field. But you can also have mentors that are really more of a group of peers. I find a lot of value in doing mastermind groups. And I'm in a couple different ones for different reasons. But having a group of people with different life experiences, different points in their careers who can all help you with whether it's, you know, motivating you to keep pushing through on a business idea you have, or even just being a sounding board if you're trying to figure out a client issue and you can get some other opinions on how you'd handle that. It's so valuable to be able to have this mind share of resources and thoughts and different people's experiences when it comes to whether it's running a business or paying down debt or whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll kind of pitch the listeners if, you know, you guys have bought a property this last year or, you know, just getting started. Yeah, let me know if you want to be on the podcast, because I think those are the best stories when you actually get, you know, you're actually then in the think of things and not, you know, your advice and what you're talking about is not esoteric. And I'll say when I, I'm, I listen to podcasts and when I hear a big name that has like a billion dollars and a hundred thousand units, like those are the podcasts are a complete waste of time, in my opinion. I mean, I want to know what the internal dialogue of like what you guys are thinking going through it and maybe coming right out the other end and because things change and exactly to your point, it's like having that mentor that's just one step above you. I think that's the best thing, especially for kids who Mm -hmm. don't want to listen to anybody. One of my favorite podcasts about going through the entrepreneurship journey was Startup, which is a, a Gimlet podcast. Gimlet is the parent company and it's a about the creation of Gimlet as a podcasting company. And Alex Bloomberg, who created it, is in season one going through his struggle of trying to get this off this company off the ground. And you hear him go in and try to pitch VCs and just totally bomb and go through all of these experiences and have these really honest conversations with his wife about, you know, is this going to be a total failure? And I've never met him. I'm probably never going to meet him, but I still feel like he's some form of a mentor because I got to hear his experience going through that and figure out how my business was kind of following along in that path. And, you know, that's just one of the wonderful things about how much access we do have to information and crowdsourcing and sharing these days. So like we said, like, you know, not everybody's entrepreneur and um, some people, for those guys who don't have 10, 20, $50,000 saved to their name. What would you say to them when uh, Lane tells them that they don't have an investing problem because they need money? They, need a, they got a money problem. They got to make some more. What's your, uh, what, what do you, what's your advice to those guys? There are two key schools of thought and it's that you can spend less or you can earn more. I argue you should do both. I think a lot of times, especially within the personal finance realm, if you're ever dabbling in personal finance, writing and blogging and all of that, a lot of people focus on the frugality aspect, you know, minimalism, cutting everything out, being a one car family or not even that, just bike everywhere. And all of those kind of little ways, you know, never go out to eat. And in my opinion, a lot of it gets into deprivation, deprivation, deprivation. First of all, you're probably going to yo-yo diet if you do that. If you're somebody who doesn't genuinely enjoy being frugal, if you just go into extreme deprivation mode, you're probably going to overreact in 180 in the other direction at some point and 
mindlessly binge and splurge and all that. So just be careful. I, you do need to save. You need to pay yourself first, but don't get overzealous about it to the point that you're going to feel you're depriving yourself. So saving is important, but earning more is bigger. I think we need to focus more on how to earn more. You need to learn how to negotiate so you can be figuring out how to earn more at your job when you have those annual reviews or when you're jumping to a different company, whatever it is. Consider looking to a side hustle if it's something you're going to genuinely enjoy. You think it is a value add both to your life, potentially to your career. Maybe it's something that kind of complements your career and what you do. But Earning more is a really key part of how to build wealth. And then once you do start to earn more, watching out for lifestyle inflation, because that is kind of the natural thing that happens is, oh, I'm earning more, I can spend more. So just be really careful that, you know, if you get a raise at work and your base living expenses are easily handled, you really don't need to inflate your lifestyle, you're very comfortable make sure that you're putting that extra money into savings or you know, into 401k or whatever it is that your financial goals are. Maybe it's towards debt repayment. So instead of just automatically increasing your lifestyle, automatically increase the amount that you're putting away in savings. But I would highly encourage people to try to focus more on the earning side than just figuring out how much more they could cut out of their day-to-day lives. Right. I really appreciate you taking that blended approach because, you know, like guys like Grant Cardone will say, just focus on making more money. And then, of course, like you said, the blog, the financial, personal finance blog sphere will always say save money. And I, I see it as a, a blended approach, just like how you say where initially you focus on the saving the money, you know, making sure that you're not bleeding cash. And then going from the Susie or- Orman, Dave Ramsey world, and then transitioning to the Grant Cardone world, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think that that approach is uh, don't lose sight of where you want to be. Don't be that person who, when you're starting to invest and in increasing your lifestyle, to still be uh, reusing toilet paper and, and ridiculous <laughs> things like that and, not, and making, making your own start, your, your ghetto lattes at Starbucks because uh, you guys know who you guys are. I wanted to say thank you to all the Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. The content has been all over the place from turnkey rentals to turkey rentals and now to syndications and private placements. The feedback from some of you is that it's been a bit of a roller coaster or Korean drama to follow the website's content. To memorialize the past and clean up things, I have created a free web course to get you up to speed by signing up at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start. Or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767. Again, join the free web course, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start. Or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767. I will also say the, the biggest thing when it comes to feeling in control of your money is that you have to identify what you value. And I say that because so often we allow other people to dictate where we should be spending our money. And whether that's spouses, parents, friends, you know, media messaging, there are a lot of signals out there about where we should value putting our funds. And instead, you need to start doing a lot of self-reflection to figure out what it is that you want to do, where you want to put your money. Because if you have enough to cover all of your basic needs and a few of those things that you really value you're going to feel great because if you're putting your money where you value, then you feel like you're not only in control, but you're spending on everything you need and want. 
So just make sure that your money is going towards what you actually care about, not what you're being told to care about. Right. And you know, it, it's funny that that applies to everyone, even the, uh, the older folks, you know, I was talking to these guys who were, were tired and they wanted to join, make the jump from single family to multifamily, like how I've done. But I asked them like, well, what's your goal? What are you trying to do? Like anybody, they're just, they just want the first thing is getting that $10,000 passive cash flow a month. And I'm like, well, you guys are there. Like, what the hell are you doing? And like, what are you wasting your time? So, I mean, everybody makes that mistake. It seems like coming back to your yeah. goals. And I think it's really easy to let other people influence what we're supposed to value. And, you know, for example, I'm going through the process of having to plan a wedding and it's unbelievable how easy it can be to get sucked into the vortex because it is a system that is set up to make you just spend irrationally. Because first of all, the price tags are completely insane and it's really hard to be able to have negotiating power because so venues will say you can only work with this vendor, which completely strips your ability to negotiate. Or if you are having to go buy bridesmaids dresses or wedding dresses or whatever, and if it just becomes very difficult to have control because there are only certain vendors and certain options. And so it's been an, I didn't particularly want the big wedding. It's more for parents and my partner who wanted to more go down this path. But what's been kind of nice is because I have written about it for years and observed people going through it for years, I can really step back and say, listen, what I valued from the jump was I wanted to have a good photographer and a good DJ. And outside of that, I don't care a whole lot. So we made sure that we picked a great photographer and a great DJ and we put a little bit more money there. And other than that, it's like, do I care about flowers on the table? No, not really. So let's trim this budget down. Let's figure out how to save a lot more on these other things. And it's made me feel much more sane going through this process than a lot of my friends who have had to go through it and who just felt incredibly overwhelmed. And also just be decisive. Like wherever you are in your life about decisions, there's I feel we so often will complicate situations for ourselves by giving, we have too many choices. There are too many ways we can do something. And we're very rarely just immediately decisive going with our gut instinct. And that's a very important skill to create as well. I'll put in my two cents. I mean, for most people, that's probably the way that they should go. But maybe for you spending that 10 grand on this uh, a tent for your venue, it's 10 grand that's going to take putting your next book out in 2018 instead of 2019 on a good editor. Like these are, you had to decide, like you have, you're in a, a, a worse situation, I feel like, because you, you're in that forefront. You have a business and you have a passion that you could be putting your funds into to higher and better use as opposed to some rinky dink uh, rental property or some stock market investment. Like, well, I'm lucky because I get paid to put books out because I'm with a traditional publisher. So I get an advance and they pay for all of the, <laughs> the that stuff. So I don't, it's not a self-published situation. Um, uh, but I do hear what you're saying. Um, now, I'm also fortunate that my parents are helping very much with paying for the wedding. But the big reason that they're doing that is because a lot of the guest list is their guests because... <laughs> You know, they both come from huge families. And so a majority of the guest list are just relatives. And I was like, well, you know, if that's going to be the situation, then I'm not the one that should be paying for that because I'm inviting 12 friends. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe if we want to be fair, I said, otherwise, if, if I did, if I was paying for it, 
then it would be incredibly small and intimate and not a lot of money because it's not something that I value like that. Right, right. And unfortunately, sometimes things like this aren't really about you. It's about everybody else that's involved. And so many aspects of our lives can certainly be seen that way. Right. But I think that at the end of the day, that just in this little example, that you're, you're making conscious decisions and you're not just blindly going along with, with the status quo. I think that's, the, that's really what I admire. That's great. It is. I mean, that's how I hope that we can all truly start to live our lives as well, is that with any purchase you're making, it is something that you consciously are wanting to do or what you're investing in or what you're saving for. It is aligned very much with your goals and your values. And that's not to knock on things. You know, we give the latte factor so much flack because you know, he focused in on lattes. And if you go after people's coffee, and I'm talking about David Bakker with Automatic Millionaire, if you go after people's coffee, they get very defensive. I am one of those people. I get immense joy out of my latte because it is truly one of my favorite beverages. But it's also a line item in my budget. I set money aside to be able to buy them because it's something I value and it's something that brings me some happiness. So it's about figuring out what those things are for you. All right. Well, well said. I hear mostly in the background. Yeah, um, I know. He's having a little cough again. Yeah. So you want to leave your contact information for anybody to get a hold of you? Sure. You can find me most easily on Twitter at Broke Millennial. And I'm also on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog. My website is BrokeMillennial.com. And you can also get the book, Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, wherever books are sold and also online at you know, your Powell's, your Amazon, your Barnes and Noble, all of those big retailers as well. And most recently, Urban Outfitters, interestingly enough. All right. Yeah. And, and listeners, let me know if you guys want to hear more of these, these personal finance blogs feel guest stars coming on. You guys might really want to know what that ghetto latte is. It's getting like, a couple shots of espresso and then going to the station and filling up with the uh, free milk. <laughs> But yeah, if you guys like that, please go and review the show. We're right about 100 reviews. Uh, we'd better be, be cool to get to that upper echelon of that 200 review mark. So yeah, let me know if you guys need any help. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.